0: From the Margins is sponsored by Visual Quill. Visual Quill is the award-winning creative agency that specializes in custom creative work for authors and publishers. From beautiful covers and trailers to marketing materials and consulting, Visual Quill helps authors and publishers get their books out and seen. Get in touch today. Go to visualquill.com, click on the contact button, and enter the special code, margin, for a free consultation. That's visualquill.com, offer code margin. I feel like it's necessary to start off this episode with the disclaimer that we will be talking candidly about sex, so if there are kids around, you might want to think about listening to
1: this later. I don't know how graphic we're supposed to be on this. We have a disclaimer at the beginning that's like if you don't want your kids to hear about graphic sex, then don't have them listen to it. Okay. So I guess like as much as you blowjob is a word, that is okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. You just say blowjob. Okay. (laughs) Blowjob. Okay,
0: so. This is Devin Simpson, the other Devin at Girl Friday. She's interviewing Anna Katz, who's an editor and collaborative writer at Girl Friday. The reason Devin interviewed Anna was because Anna used to work at Toys in Babeland in Seattle, where a part of the job included recommending sex books to customers. So what do we mean by sex books? I'll let Anna explain.
1: Let's see. There were how-to's. How to please your man, how to please your woman, how to give a good blowjob, how to, you know, do this, do that. There was all kinds of erotica Books about different life phases, like going through puberty, or coming out, or books about gender identity. There were books about sex after life changes, like after menopause, or after turning 60, or for those who might have special needs.
0: Anna says that in order to give good book recommendations, she had to read a lot of the books. But there were way too many books for her to read them all. So she'd choose one from each category to read so that when a customer needed a particular kind of book, Anna knew of at least one she could recommend.
1: I met a woman who was simultaneously dealing with health issues that made sex difficult in general, physically, and then of course, there's emotional things that come with that. And then she was also at the same time transitioning from identifying as straight to identifying as gay. Plus she just met someone that she liked and wanted to have sex with that person. So she had a lot of questions and there was a lot of new territory she was exploring. And it was really fun to talk about all these different things that were intersecting for her.
0: So Anna would learn about a particular customer's situation, then figure out which book she should recommend, and she watched people let down their guard a little. People would walk into the store looking nervous and shy, and by the time they made it to the register counter, they would be talking more animatedly, and would walk out of the store with a book in their hand, standing a little taller. (laughs) Anna understands how much the right book at the right time can help someone navigate their personal sexual growth.
1: When I first started working there, I was happy to see a puberty book on the shelves it was growing up it's a girl thing by mavis jukes and i'd read that book when i was a teenager so it was a nice little nostalgic moment and also books about puberty are really good for for kids to get i know that my parent who gave me the book wasn't super comfortable talking about sex and growing up in puberty and all that, so instead I had this book to read. And probably today, there's so much craziness on the internet, I think it can be really helpful for kids to discern reality and fantasy.
0: But not every sex book out there is a helpful resource. So part of Anna's job was to vet the books they would order for the store. And Anna shares how she decided what made the cut.
1: You know, when it comes to books like sex, some people like some things, other people like other things, but the more inclusive, the better. And then, of course, on top of that, having a sense of humor about it is very important because sex is weird, and so it's best not to take it too seriously.
0: And as for the kinds of books Anna would try to avoid bringing into the store?
1: The first thing I'd look for was any bigoted language, misogyny, sexism, racism, things like that. But then one time I read a a basic How to Please Your Woman book, and the author used the phrase, Your Lady about 5 million times, like, your lady will love it when you do this, or make sure your lady has that, just over and over and over again, your lady, your lady, your lady. And I'm sure some people would not be bothered by that, but it drove me crazy.
0: So what can we get from books about sex and sexuality? Why do they matter? Anna says, for one thing, they normalize an experience that most of us have, have had, or want to have. Sex is something that almost everyone is doing, but no one talks about. So books are a safe space to get answers to questions, to realize that you're not that strange and to hopefully help
1: improve or enhance a private but important part of your life. Sex books matter because like all books, they allow us to see that our experiences tend to be universal. So whatever sex issues someone is having, there's probably a book about it. Probably lots of other people have gone through or are going through similar things and it makes reading about it makes the world a less lonely place. Mm.
0: In this episode of From the Margins, we hear stories about writing about sex, sexuality, and sexual experience. Because when something isn't talked about much, how do we learn to write about it? How does a sex scene in a novel advance the plot? What makes a good sex scene? When we write about sex, what are we really writing about? And not all sexual experiences are the good kind. How can we use writing to help process sexual trauma? Or how do we write about our own sexual experiences in a way that deepens our understanding of ourselves? In this episode, we explore answers to these questions with candid tales from a variety of writers. From Girl Friday Productions, you're listening to From the Margins, where we explore the story behind the story. I'm your host, Devin Fredrickson. In this podcast, people reveal the backstory that influences their writing, lives, and work. Because the most interesting part doesn't always make it onto the page, sometimes it comes from the margins.
2: I think there's a lot of sexism behind the attitude toward romance novels, and a whole lot of people who have never read them have negative attitudes about them.
0: This is Margaret Mallory. She's a historical romance novelist. And full disclosure, she also happens to be the mother of one of my best friends. And when Margaret first started publishing her books, I was totally guilty of promoting the stigma against romance novelists. My other friends and I love to make Margaret's daughter cover her ears by reading aloud sex scenes written by her mother. It's just what any friend would do, right? But then I actually started reading Margaret's books, because despite how much I might have teased her daughter, I was really proud of Margaret, because I knew her story and what it had taken for her to become an author. I
2: left a decent paying job with benefits (laughs) to write full time. She talked it over with her husband before making the decision. And we agreed that we could go down to one income for two years and see if I could get published.
0: And it was a pretty tough decision. She had been a lawyer for more than 20 years and was the first lawyer in her family, a fact that made her parents proud. She had spent a lot of time and money going to school to become a lawyer and build her career in child services and the aging field. She was also a policy wonk and had done a lot of legislative work.
2: My kids, you know, they had grown up with a mom who put on her navy blue suit, low heels, and (laughs) went to work, you know.
0: But she says her husband was incredibly supportive about her decision, even when the change was going to drop their household income by half.
2: So I treated it as a job, and I knew that I was... Essentially, taking money away from the family for my dream, to give this a try. So I was very dedicated and serious about it.
0: So Margaret wrote her first manuscript, entered it in contests, and joined writers' groups and critique groups and got feedback. Then she found an agent. But her first book didn't sell during those two years, so she got a job and went back to work. But Margaret's agent had explained to her that she needed to write a second book, since publishers and readers want a series. So she wrote a second book, and nine months after she went back to work, her agent sold a two-book deal. And Margaret once again quit her job to become a full-time romance writer, this time for good. But initially, Margaret didn't even know she was writing romance. She had set out to write historical fiction. During her first writing attempt, she started working on both a historical novel and contemporary novel, and she thought they were both mainstream novels. She wrote about 50 pages of each and then asked her sister, who's a librarian, to read them and tell Margaret which she had the better voice for. And her sister told her she had the voice for historical fiction.
2: But my sister said, well, you know you're writing romance. And I said, no, I'm just writing a historical novel. And she said, no, this is, this is a romance. They're both romances. But to get published, I had to get my head around being a romance writer.
0: Margaret says by that point, she had only ever read a couple true romance novels, but she liked novels that had romance in them, she liked watching romantic comedies, and she would cry during romantic commercials.
2: So I think I always had a natural inclination toward it, but it was thwarted (laughs) by the attitude toward romance novels, and particularly um, in my own household. My mother, she always looked down on romance novels as trashy books. I never read them, I think in large part because I grew up in a household where my mother made remarks like that.
0: Her mom pretty quickly embraced Margaret's newfound identity as a romance novelist. But her mom did feel the need to warn minors about the content of the books.
2: She would stand by people in the line and make sure they were over 18. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody said they were buying a book for someone. Is she over 18? Because she really should be over 18 to read these books.
0: (laughs) Margaret said it even took a little while for her to embrace an identity as a romance writer. But at the time, to go the traditional publishing route, she had to choose which she would be, a romance writer or a historical fiction writer, so that bookstores would know where to shelve her books. She said romance was central to her stories, so she chose romance. She says that most of the people she knew were surprised. For years, her neighbors and friends had known her as a lawyer. They had never even heard her mention writing,
2: My first book signing, I had 100 people show up, which is unusual when you're not a famous author because everybody was so curious. People were shocked. I was surprised that I did it. (laughs) I surprised myself.
0: Even though Margaret gained the full support of her family, not every loved one has read her books because they include sex scenes. My dad
2: never read them. Um, My mother read them, and I begged her not to. (laughs) She said, well, after she read my first book, she said, said, well, it was very well written, except for those scenes. You didn't really have to have those scenes in them.
3: Um,
2: Yes, 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 yes. She couldn't even say that. It was those scenes. We both knew what she was talking about. And my kids don't read them. They say it would damage them for life to read a love scene written by their mother. And we are both fine with that. We are both fine with that. Margaret's first book came out when her son was on his way to
0: college, and when they were driving there before he started school, Margaret brought an autographed copy of the book to give him.
2: And he says, well, you got to take the love scenes out for me to read it. I said, okay. So I start asking them, he goes, no, that's not good enough you can't just X them. And so I said, well, what can I like black them out? And he goes, no, that's not good enough. They have to be out of the book. So I have scissors. I'm in the car and I'm like clipping out the pages. And I have, when I'm done, I have this pitiful little stack and I'm like, this is what I get all the flack about is this pitiful little stack. I should have written more. (laughs) You know, I'm getting it from my kids, from my mother, from my neighbors. You know, (laughs) said this is pitiful. And then I told him, I go, but you know, it's a romance, so they're thinking about it a whole lot more than what they actually do it. And he goes, oh. And so he never read it even after (laughs) I destroyed his book.
0: So, those scenes, as Margaret's mother called them, the sex scenes, the scenes that made her dad not want to read her books, that made her kids not want to read her books, that made her daughter's friends like me want to read them aloud just to get a reaction, the scenes that make her books technically classify as romance? Why all the fuss? Well, things do get pretty steamy, but Margaret says that the sex scenes are more than just the sex. For a writer, they're a really useful plotting tool, and Margaret says it took her a little while to learn that.
2: My first run with my first book, that didn't sell. Some of the feedback I got back from the editors was that I had closed the bedroom door too much. You know, I think I maybe had one sex scene in it, but mostly I avoided them. And my agent shared that with me, and she said, you know, you might give it a try. <laughs> and this is as I recall.
0: And so she did, and she found that it dramatically improved her writing.
2: Because those scenes can be pivotal. These are books about adult relationships, and a lot can happen in a love scene. Sex scenes in particular ought to move the plot forward and move the character arc forward. And they're intense, they're emotional, and they can really bring out the conflict between the characters and their misunderstandings.
0: Margaret writes from both the male and female characters' perspectives so she can bring out how differently they're thinking about their relationship and what the consequences are of what's happening between them.
2: Often in an intimate scene, you're having characters say things because they're guards down that they wouldn't say otherwise. They're disclosing secrets that can often cause more conflict, or they're disclosing true feelings that they would not have otherwise disclosed. They're a rich opportunity for conflict and emotion.
0: But it's one thing to recognize sex scenes as a writing opportunity, and another thing to write them well. Margaret had to learn this whole other side of romance writing. With the help of her editor, she learned what not to do.
2: She was very frank about things. She would write in the corner, not sexy, (laughs) not sexy over like particular (laughs) phrases. For example, her
0: editor didn't like the word belly.
2: That was not a sexy word.
0: Margaret says she had to learn a whole other vernacular, because when writing historical romance scenes, you can't use modern language.
2: Some of the older words are just kind of weird.
0: She'll sometimes think to herself, is there a
2: different word I can use besides shaft? You don't want to use language that's offensive to some of your readers, and you don't want to use modern language, and so that is a struggle, to not always use the same word.
0: The other difficult part of writing a good sex scene is making it believable anatomically.
2: You can't have the physical part be distracting because it doesn't make sense. You know, you don't want the reader going, where was his hand? Wasn't he just standing? How'd he get, you know? And you also don't want it
0: to be a step-by-step
2: clinical description.
0: But a writer also shouldn't make a scene so acrobatic that the readers get distracted from the romance or important plot points because they're focusing on the fact that each character now seems to have more than two hands. And Margaret says that not all sex scenes should be created equally. Each scene should be distinct.
2: I have themes of trust and loyalty in my books. So, you know, early on there, there's going to be a lot of hesitation. There's going to be not sharing true motivations. And then later when they have blow up disagreements, you know, (laughs) one of them may still want to have sex anyway (laughs) and the other won't. And anyway, there's, um, they should be different. They should be different and they should be character driven.
0: Writing a believable sex scene is important for a reader payoff But Margaret says that the sexual tension throughout the book and the emotional parts of the sex scenes carry a lot more weight than the sex itself. So it's important for a writer to put his or her focus there. That's what will keep the readers turning the page. And it took a while for Margaret to learn this skill. The skill of holding a reader's attention and building the sexual tension enough that the romance drives the story forward. I read a
2: lot of other books to see how they were handling it, and I think... Having read a lot of books written by men was not a positive thing for me. I had to read more books by women, because I'd read the male point of view forever, you know, the detective stories and the thrillers and a lot of others. So I'd say reading, reading a lot of other people's books was helpful.
0: And Margaret says one of the key tricks to writing good sexual tension is to shut out all the people who aren't your audience. Friends, family, other people who you might feel embarrassed about reading your sexy writing. She says she writes for her true fans, and no one else. And she says she knows when the writing is going well, because certain scenes will make her cry
2: when i'm weeping over my laptop <laughs> if i'm making myself cry because it's emotionally intense then i know it's good <laughs> one time my son came in while i was writing and he caught me like crying while i was writing and he goes mom what he goes you know what's gonna happen <laughs> and i didn't tell him it was like the fifth time i'd revised that scene <laughs> So if the fifth or the tenth time I'm revising it, I'm crying. It's one of my best scenes.
0: So there's writing fictional sex scenes. And then there's writing about your own sexual experiences. Which can be tricky, because judgment from other people isn't just directed at your writing. It can be directed at your own life decisions and who you are as a person. Next, we hear from sex columnist Larissa Pham about why she started writing about her own sexual experiences and how that decision
3: impacted her life. It's larger than sex. It's just sort of like this general adventurousness and like a willingness to like try new things that... I have always had since I was quite young.
0: Larissa Pham is the author of Come Shots, a column for Nerve magazine, where she writes vignettes about her own sex life. She pitched the column while she was an undergraduate.
3: I'm obsessed with trying to represent what sex is like for a woman in this era because I think part of the reason why I had such a hard time in undergrad and why a lot of my friends had such a hard time learning what it was like is that there are no good models for for one, casual sex. Larissa says she started
0: writing as a political act after she realized people like her were underrepresented in the media.
3: When you're an Asian woman, you you get exoticized repeatedly to the degree that you start to become desensitized to it and you also start to internalize it. And it it can be really difficult because if you have been hanging around with people who aren't really good to you to begin with, when that becomes racially loaded, then you start being like, oh, like, I don't know if this person actually likes me for who I am, or if they're just kind of entertaining themselves with like this exotic fantasy, or the other the other side of that is they're only with me because they don't have a respectable person that they actually want to date. And it's things that sort of add up, and you begin to form this picture of yourself as kind of abject. And it's, like, this sort of ongoing thing that you kind of have to neutralize. But I mean, it's a lot of just really toxic stuff from, like, basically every direction. Um, because it is really hard to find, like, a good portrayal of someone who looks like me that isn't the devious Asian girlfriend who stole the main character's man, or is totally evil, or, like, a submissive schoolgirl. And I think just realizing that a racialized body is a racialized body and you have to navigate it and there aren't really easy answers.
0: After Larissa started writing her column, she says that she was able to examine her race, among other things, through the lens of sex, allowing her to express herself in a way that, up until then, she hadn't been able to.
3: Sex is something that is really emotionally loaded. It's just something that is so potent. One of the first things that I ever published was at The Rumpus. It was called The Prophecy. It's an essay about female abjection and race and not feeling like a lovable person. And none of that really needs to be talked about through sex, but I decided to write it about through that lens because that was the way that these things most made themselves apparent.
0: But even though Larissa was writing about sex for her own private reasons, her writing was public, which meant anyone could read about the very intimate details of her sex life, including her mother.
3: This was like my junior year of college. My mom came to visit and she Googled me and she she read pretty much everything that showed up and then she just like she just wouldn't talk to me for like a really long time
0: larissa says her mother was so upset she didn't talk to larissa for the rest of that
3: summer she was just like very dismissive of me and kind of treated me a little she called me like a worthless hussy once but maybe that sounds really bad but i mean asian mothers you know like they overreact But (laughs) larissa
0: says she understands why her mother reacted the way she did it's hard for anyone's mother to recognize that her child is a sexual being But Larissa's mother had to acknowledge both that and the fact that her daughter was writing about her sexuality for a public audience and writing about mistakes she had made and the not-so-beautiful or proud moments of her sexual life. Larissa says she recognizes it would be a shock for any mother to read that kind of material.
3: But I did feel judged by someone who I love. And I think being the kind of person that I am, doing the kind of work very confessionally and very publicly, people can be quick to make judgments about one's character based on one's subject material.
0: Eventually, Larissa's mother did start speaking to her again, and they have since made amends.
3: She really came around in like a really remarkable way, and now she kind of knows that there are things of mine that she shouldn't read. It was a pretty dicey summer though.
0: After Larissa dealt with her mother's reaction, she then had to tend to the fact that her column project wasn't really unfolding as planned. When she first pitched the idea, she thought she would be writing about hookups and flings. The column would follow her through her dating life. But then she met someone, someone who she started falling for.
3: This this individual, we were talking about reading an emotional memory and I was like, what's it been like for you to read? my column these past couple of months, and he was like, you know, like it's truer than true, and it reminds me that there's beauty in things even when I can't see it all the time. And I thought that was probably the best thing that he could have said, because it is a work of creative nonfiction. There's a lot of streamlining that I do. And I think one of the goals of creative nonfiction is to take something that is messy like life, like a relationship, like a sexual diary, and turn it into something that makes sense.
0: So in addition to the intimate details of her sex life and what happens under the sheets, she also found herself writing about the space between sex, and the romance that started to blossom. And her writing isn't her only outlet for her sexual curiosities and expression. She also happens to work at a sex toy shop, where she engages with customers every day about what might make their sex lives better.
3: It's really wonderful because I love being able to talk to people and help them figure out what they want, what they might need, and then give them a very concrete product or solution or something to help them feel the way that they want to feel. And I think it's really important to provide really good, really empathetic sex ed to people. And that's something that I get to do every time I'm in the shop, and that makes me really happy.
0: Larissa recalls a time that a man in his 70s came into the store.
3: I like, At first I think he's a creep, because I'm like, oh no, like, I'm going to have to kick him out. But she said she soon
0: found out that he was a very sweet man. He told her he was divorced, and he had just met a
3: new girl he was like, she's such a doll. I just, I want to make her feel good. And I like, don't really know how. Larissa says she walked him around the store as he asked questions
0: like, what does this do? And what does that do? And she suggested various options to
3: try. Just like kind of blew his mind because he comes from a generation where sex was not talked about in the way that it is now. He was like, wow, I didn't know that sex could be so gentle. And it's experiences like this that make her love her
0: job and that fuel her writing. She says the patrons she mostly enjoys are couples because often they seem so hopeful. She says it's heartwarming to see two people in love trust each other enough to explore new sexual territory because she recognizes that sex isn't just about the act of having sex. It goes much deeper
3: for most people. Something that I'm fond of saying is sex is the thing that yields the most when you touch it. And I'm literally picturing like this sleek surface that you poke and like stuff comes out. Like that's how I feel about sex. A lot of people's anxieties, like a lot of like my racial anxiety comes out when I think about sex, when I talk about sex, when I write about it. And that's why I like writing about it because I can write about a lot of things.
0: From the Margins is sponsored by Visual Quill. Visual Quill is the award-winning creative agency that specializes in custom creative work for authors and publishers. At Visual Quill, senior designer Kate Race creates covers for books ranging from historical nonfiction to romance novels featuring shirtless, muscular men, which means that coworkers sometimes get jealous of her job. You know, it's like, Kate? What are you working on? And it's like, yeah,
4: I get paid to do
0: this. (laughs) But sometimes even the steamiest covers need to be taken down a notch. And when a publisher requests that no nipples appear in cover art, Kate knows how to source the right image and edit it while still preserving the sex appeal. What was good about this particular photo was he was
2: kind of holding his sword, you know, in front of him, so you could just see partial on one nipple, and so we Photoshopped that out, and you know, everything was good, everything was wonderful.
0: From beautiful websites and covers to marketing materials and consulting, Visual Quill helps authors and publishers get their books out and seen. Get in touch today. Go to visualquill.com. Click on the Contact button and enter the special code, MARGIN, for a free consultation. That's visualquill.com, offer code MARGIN. So for Margaret Mallory, we heard how sex is a writing device she uses to advance the romance. For Larissa Pham, sex serves as a conduit through which she can write about everything. Next, we'll hear from an author about how writing about her sexual experiences has served as a way for her to understand who she is.
5: My name is Alyssa Washuda. I'm the author of My Body is a Book of Rules and Starvation Mode. Both of them are memoirs.
0: Alyssa says that both of these books are about the intersection between her personal space, her body, and pop culture. And it was through her writing that Alyssa was able to piece together all the facets of herself that make her her because Alyssa had to face a few obstacles on the road to not only understanding her identity, but accepting it and embracing it. The first was her race. Alyssa is an enrolled member of the Cowlitz Indian tribe, and she takes enormous pride in her native roots now. But she didn't always feel so secure in this part of her identity. I was really confused growing up in New Jersey, really far from my tribe. The Cowlitz tribe is based in the southwestern part of Washington state, and Alyssa says she would come out to visit pretty frequently. But in New Jersey, she didn't see herself represented in the culture or in what she was learning in school.
5: In New Jersey history class, we had a unit on the Lenape people, and it just really portrayed, you know, that those people as being completely gone in the past, which is not true at all. There were a lot of scary Indian ghost stories we would hear that were just, you know, I mean, totally problematic, offensive, hurtful to me as, you know, a Native kid growing up, seeing myself only in these stories where, you know, Native people were villains or in in movies like Pocahontas and Dances with Wolves. I thought, I don't wear buckskins. I don't have that kind of attire, so I must not be legitimate.
0: Alyssa's mother is enrolled cowlitz. And her grandmother was an enrolled member of the Yakima tribe. And we trace
5: our lineage back to Chief Thomas of the Cascade people. And my mother's family lived along the Columbia River for since time immemorial.
0: Alyssa's dad's family is Irish-American and Eastern European-American. And this combination of genes means that Alyssa has a pretty white complexion, a fact that she struggled with as she tried to understand where she belonged. Was she one of the white kids in school, or could she claim her Native identity and all that came with it? I really had a a process of trying to figure out what it meant to me to be Cowlitz and, and Cascade. Another obstacle to understanding herself was her Catholic education. I went to Catholic school from kindergarten through seventh grade. The first sex ed class she remembers in school was called Family Life.
5: It was sort of, as you would expect, I think, driven by discussions of abstinence before marriage and not to masturbate. And this is what makes a boy different from a girl. And this is how that is part of God's plan.
0: By the time the sex ed piece of the curriculum came along, Alyssa says she had already come to terms with what her role would be in life. My job was to please God. And my
5: actions were to be motivated by that thought of someone else that, you know, the all powerful God. And there was a lot of fear in that for me. I was just afraid of hell. Of course, I was afraid of sinning. I was afraid of doing something that wasn't pleasing to God. And so once the human sexuality piece came along, I was very uncomfortable with it. I, I really didn't want to learn about that. And there was a lot of dread in that for me, too, because it seemed like it was very consistent with what I had already been learning about my role in life being to please someone else. This seemed like sexuality was was an opportunity to use my body to further the aims of the Lord. And there was no discussion in there of really what I wanted or any kind of pleasure I could derive from it, any kind of joy. So... That was, you know, that was my first education in in sex,
0: and that certainly took a long time to resolve. Alyssa says she remembers feeling uncomfortable with the idea that sex before marriage was wrong. It didn't sit right with me that, that this should be wrong. So Alyssa had to figure out for herself how she wanted to live her life, not thinking that sex before marriage was wrong. But being told that it was a sin. So by the time I got to college, I really, you know, I wasn't going
5: to church anymore. I didn't hate the church. I wasn't angry at the church. But, you know, I, I
0: just, it wasn't for me. So I didn't go. I didn't, I didn't participate. She said by that point in her life, she was looking for a different way to view sex that wasn't controlled by a fear of God. There had been something tripped in me where my I
5: had never really given much thought to the fact that this could be for me this could be something that's that brings joy to my life that had just never occurred to me
0: what happened next in Alyssa's life challenged every previous notion she'd had about herself her sexual identity and the world it's something that changed everything to come Basically, I was, I was 20 years old.
5: There's someone I was seeing, I guess you could say. Somebody I knew. Uh, I wasn't wasn't ready to, to have sex with him. I had never had sex with anybody before.
0: One night, Alyssa invited him into her apartment to hang out. And in, in the middle of the night, he raped me. Alyssa says at first she wasn't sure whether she had been raped. I said no, but I just thought, you know, I invited him in. This was somebody I knew. All signs in popular culture at the time pointed to her experience not being rape. And people she confided in were doubtful. Alyssa reached out to someone on the campus help phone line, and she told the man who answered about what had happened. Then he said,
5: you know, you know, I've been doing this for a really long time, and you know, usually women who are raped, they're beaten up pretty badly, sometimes they even die, so it doesn't
0: sound like a sexual assault to me. Alyssa told another person, a peer counselor, about her experience, and she says that that person wasn't very supportive and didn't seem to think it qualified as rape. And so I didn't tell anybody really for a
5: long time told maybe one person, but I really just wanted to make it go away because I didn't feel like I could trust my own feelings about it, my own thoughts about what had happened.
0: And that was, that was so destructive. What followed may not be linked to Alyssa's rape experience, but it certainly didn't help her healing process. Right before her senior year of college, Alyssa started noticing big mood disturbances. She says she's always been a moody person but she could tell that these were more than mood swings. She was eventually diagnosed as being bipolar, and this shift in her mental health impacted every aspect of her life, including her sex life.
5: Once I really started experiencing those severe mood swings, I did begin seeking out a lot more sexual partners. And, you know, I I think, you know, I I can't exactly look back and remember in every instance what I was looking for. But, you know, I know that I was looking for something to change the way I felt.
0: Alyssa says the medications she was given were not ever a complete solution that made her feel better. And so I think at that time, I was just, you know, trying to make
5: myself feel better in other people. And just having really brief encounters, I think was probably, it was something I sought out because there's not that sort of long-term process of getting to know someone and becoming vulnerable, which is thrilling and wonderful if you're up for it. But if you're If you're not, as I wasn't at the time, it can just be too much, and so I was letting people in very much on my terms, and my terms were to limit how much of, you know, my heart I showed. It was so much easier to expose my body than it was to, you know, expose who I really was, what, what I was afraid of, what I wanted.
0: In Alyssa's memoir, My Body is a Book of Rules, she shares snapshots of this time in her life with raw emotional honesty. There's one chapter where she lists all the prescription drugs she tried and how they affected her. In another chapter, she describes 24 sexual encounters with different men. In chapters devoted to her Native identity, she explores how sexual violence has been used as a form of control and oppression of Native people throughout history, and how, for a while, she tried to fit her rape into her Indian life by accepting an academic explanation that her being raped was something that was inherited through her ancestry. Reading the book, anyone who doesn't already know Alyssa gets the impression that she's a very open, forthright person. But in reality, that isn't actually the case. I certainly had never told anybody
5: anything with the level of detail that's in the book. Strangely enough, I consider myself a pretty private person. And I don't share things the way I do in constructing a narrator on the page. Everything that's in that book happened to me, but in the narrator, I've created a different person in a way. And that that
0: helps me do that work. Alyssa says that in order to write about these things, she had to separate herself from the Alyssa she was writing about. That's definitely a
5: character. It's a version of me that's so far in the past. But, you know, it's also somebody who I tried to make especially complicated in a lot of ways. And I tried to bring some of my thoughts onto the page that I consider kind of ugly, because I, I just didn't want to let myself off the hook as a human being, even though it, it was a separate process of of showing that I, I guess showing myself that I wasn't at fault for the rape, but that doesn't mean that I'm a, a perfect human being who is without flaws. And it was important to me to put those flaws on the page, maybe to blow them up a little bit in, in ways that that made me uncomfortable, but that, but that I felt were necessary in order to Fulfill my responsibility of building a human character.
0: It was by putting herself on the page as this other person, this character, that she was able to reshape her narrative about her rape experience. Before writing her book, her narrative had told her that she was at fault. I didn't fight. I didn't, you know, I said no, but, but he
5: did it anyway. I must have let him do it. I tried to talk myself out of being upset about it because I couldn't change what had happened. And I had been shown that there's no cause for outrage here. Everything was fine. It's my fault.
0: As a senior in college, Alyssa started going to therapy, and that initially helped her start changing the narrative. But it also left her feeling that this was a terrible trauma that had ruined her. And while that idea did shift her thinking and made her feel somewhat better, that mentality wasn't going to help her move forward. And so
5: taking it out of my head and putting it into writing really changed things. Because I really took the opportunity to to explore it in writing. Like, was I complicit in this? Was this my fault? I was able to use writing to really explore every detail of that. I think that was a very helpful process, getting that down and just creating something that was an alternative narrative to what I was seeing in pop culture.
0: Alyssa hadn't set out to write that book in the hopes that it would be therapeutic. She hadn't written nonfiction before, aside from one essay. But once she realized that her life and her experiences were worthy of being written about, she really dug into that. Because up until that point, she had been so ashamed of having been raped and of being bipolar. But she discovered that the page was a place where she could turn that shame into something else.
5: The process began to feel therapeutic to me. But for a while, I didn't really get into actually going to therapy. And once I did, I realized that writing the book had been an important therapeutic process. But it wasn't a replacement for therapy like I had begun to think of it. When I'm pouring that much into the page, the page becomes part of my echo chamber that's like already built inside my skull. And it's really helpful to have, you know, another person helping me work through things. So I think it's just like part of a huge therapeutic
0: package. What writing about the rape did for Alyssa was make her an authority figure on what happened. Up until that point, popular culture and many people that she talked to had told her how she should feel about what happened but by writing about it, Alyssa became the expert on her own experience. And eventually, after years of medications and monitoring her mood swings, Alyssa began to better understand her body and mind, and how it reacts to external factors like alcohol, diet, and stress. Now, it's unclear whether Alyssa is bipolar, and that's been freeing. What had seemed like a life sentence of mental instability now seems like an avoidable fate. And Alyssa's discomfort about her native identity has shifted too. She's become much more involved in the local native community in Seattle and in her tribe, which helped her realize that there's a different way of being native for every person who's native. And this has helped resolve all her residual insecurities about her appearance. I think my skin color is awesome because it's mine and,
5: you know, I do realize that because I'm pale I have, you know, benefited from white privilege for my whole life, but it's not something that I'm upset about anymore, it's something that I acknowledge and learn from and try to bring into my writing.
0: So how do we write about sex in a way that makes us authority figures on our own experiences, or sex in general? How do we become sex experts? In our final story, we hear from a writer who writes expertly and unabashedly about sex, sexuality, and her own sexual experiences, and how she rose to that place of authority in her work. Alison Moon is a memoirist and sex educator, and she's also the author of the young adult series Tales of the Pack, which is a coming of age series about a pack of lesbian werewolves. And like many great ideas by women, her idea to write these books came to her after
4: getting into an argument with a man. It stemmed from uh, having a conversation with a guy who Uh, well-meaning but ultimately not very keen on womanhood in a lot of ways, (laughs) a little bit of a misogynist, and we got into an argument about werewolves, vampires, all sorts of monsters, and he said that he would never want to watch a movie or read a book that featured a female werewolf because nobody wanted to read about hairy, aggressive women.
0: When Allison recounted this experience to her partner, her partner said, that sounds like a book.
4: And I started thinking about the metaphor around werewolfism and puberty, which is, you know, kind of well-worn territory. A lot of people are familiar with that as a trope. And so I thought that it was really did feel like a metaphor for, you know, not only women's culture, but lesbian culture specifically, in my experience. Because, you know, we run in tight packs and we are often sleeping with each other. You know, we, we will definitely bed hop in some ways in our communities, eschewing traditional gender roles and traditional ideas of femininity and beauty often Growing our hair out, and uh, you know, and then of course the notion of the, the women change moods with the moon.
0: The more Allison thought about it, the more writing a lesbian werewolf series just made sense.
4: For me, as a queer person, I like the notion of non-normative bodies and the body kind of moving outside its traditional bounds. Whether that means doing physically impossible things or just exploring what it means to shift the boundaries of the body
0: and Allison never felt like her sexuality fit within the norms of sexual orientation. She grew up in a very conservative town in Ohio. She remembers the first time she realized she might be different from her peers. She was talking to her first love in high school about this couple who had just started dating.
4: It was a big controversy because one of the good Christian girls, using square quotes, was dating one of the few Jewish boys. And it became a controversy amongst my high school friends. And I thought it was like, you know, for me, I was raised liberal. I was very radical. I felt very out of place in this school. My then boyfriend and I were talking about that. And I'm like, well, you love who you love. I mean, it's like, it doesn't matter what their religion is or their races or their background or their gender. Like, you just love who you love. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. pause, 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 rewind. Did you just say you could love somebody regardless of their gender. And I'm like, but, yeah, of course. Like, that's... It was just so obvious to me. It was so natural to me to think that. And then when he was like, well, no, I could never fall in love with a man. And I'm like, oh, my God. It was... That was my awakening that, like, not all my friends have the same thoughts about their, their friends that I do. Not all... My friends can, you know, find the things sexy that aren't in these specific boundaries. And so I, that was my moment where I'm like, oh man, I'm bi. I'm super duper bi. It didn't occur to me until that moment.
0: Allison started identifying as bisexual when she was 16 and came out of the closet when she was 17 after she was outed by her city newspaper. Allison was hanging out at an LGBT community center, and a newspaper reporter who was writing a story on queer youth asked Allison if she could take a photo of her for the story. Allison didn't think anything of it, since she didn't think she'd be part of the story, and agreed to the photo. And the photo ran with the article above the fold on the cover metro section of the Sunday paper.
4: And the caption was, gay teens, Allison Moon, 17." And that's how my parents found out. They called me downstairs on Sunday morning and the phone started ringing all day and it didn't stop. Basically, my mother started fielding phone calls from concerned parents and, you know, my ex-boyfriend's mom and neighbors who were all wondering what the heck was going on. It was a really weird day.
0: (laughs) Allison said her parents were upset, but mostly because they didn't know how to handle the news.
4: One of the things about bisexuality specifically that's unique is that, you know, because half of you seems quote unquote normal, if you actually come out as bi, it's I think it's harder for some people to understand than coming out as gay because they just don't quite understand why you can't just choose one. After
0: Allison left home and moved to Los Angeles, she discovered that she preferred dating women, almost exclusively.
4: To such a degree that I'm like, actually, I think I might be a lesbian. So I came out as a lesbian and started only dating women and just really identifying strongly that way. And that worked for me for a couple of years.
0: And then Allison met a cisgendered man who made Allison question her self-proclaimed lesbian identity. By that point, she had pretty much written men off completely. But this guy challenged her idea of what masculinity could be. He identified as bisexual, and he liked Allison because she was a lesbian, not in spite of her being a lesbian.
4: He liked the fact that I didn't shave my armpits. He liked the fact that I liked women. He liked all of those things about me. And I didn't believe him at first because I was like, well, you're a guy, so you're going to eventually tell me to start shaving my armpits or want me to wear more skirts or whatever. And he's like, no, no, this is really true. I'm, I prefer lesbians as partners, as girlfriends.
0: He was the male founder of a queer women's camp at Burning Man. And when Allison stayed at the camp, she saw him more clearly than she ever had. And that's when she fell in love with him.
4: I just saw him really kind of practice what he preached around really just loving lesbians, truly and absolutely honestly. And it translated into sex, so that, like, the first time we had sex, he didn't use his penis. He wanted to use his hands on me and his mouth, and he wanted me to strap it on, and we had a wonderful sexual romp that felt like lesbian sex in every way, except that I just happened to be having sex with a man. And it was lovely.
0: But the fact that Allison felt herself falling in love with a man was a huge contradiction to her identity at that point in her life. Her community knew her as a lesbian, so how could she fall in love with a man? She wrote about this predicament in her memoir titled
4: Bad Dyke. I am now a bad dyke. I'm now one of those those women who thinks she's a lesbian then falls in love with a man and, and ruins everything for everybody. <laughs> so, and that was you know, a part of me having to deal with my own shame and my own fear of being rejected by my community, by my friends.
0: Her motivation to write her book Bad Dyke was inspired by the idea that silence breeds shame. So by staying silent about her sexuality, Allison would be perpetuating shame. So she decided to write a collection of candid essays about her sexual experiences.
4: When you can read other people's stories or watch other people's stories, I think that creates a wonderful opportunity for realizing that we're not alone. We all have unique ways of approaching our sexuality, and they're all valid.
0: Allison is a sex educator, and so writing about her sexual experiences just seemed like a natural extension of the work she was already doing. And she says that she doesn't really feel weird about being incredibly open and vocal about her sex life. She hoped her stories could be illuminating for people, to serve as a beacon of permission.
4: Of just saying like, this is normal, this is wonderful, this is beautiful, or this was painful, but it's okay and it happened and it's fine. I think that's a hugely important role. And for me, that's because that feeds into my mission. Any sort of anxiety I might have about sharing that stuff is dissipated by my belief that this stuff matters and it's really, really important to share.
0: So what gave Allison the authority to write about her sexuality in a way that might be illuminating for others? Well, for one thing, she was willing to write about it, which already gives her a competitive edge in the sexual memoir market, since so few people are willing to put their sex lives on the page for all to read. Being a sex educator also gives her a leg up, since she has the vocabulary to talk about sex in both a practical and intellectual way. But she has this other thing, which might be her most valuable asset as a sex writer. She has the willingness to be completely honest about her sexual experiences and identity,
4: understanding that because sexuality moves through pretty much all aspects of our lives, but often in very unacknowledged ways, that even starting to start having a conversation with oneself about your sexuality, about your relationship to your body, about your relationship to pleasure, starting to get a good, having a good working relationship with that kind of thing will really help, I think, transform a lot of of aspects of one's life. When you start to become more embodied and have a stronger sense of what you like, don't like, what you're looking for in the world, the relationship to one's body is incredibly important. And then, of course, you know, just in terms of our own relationships to our friends and our identities, because, again, sexuality feeds directly into our sense of self. And so in terms of the way that you relate to your community, the way that you relate to your family even, is really about coming from a place of understanding yourself and uh, having a good working relationship with your own identity.
0: To write about sex in a way that people can relate to, one of the most important lessons to learn is that everybody approaches sex differently. Allison says that as a sex educator, the number one question she hears is, am I normal?
4: Everybody wants to know if they're normal. And that means, do they come the right way? Do they like the right things? It's painful at some points to hear that. and At the same time, it's nice to be reminded that that is kind of an ubiquitous concern. That's something that, again, why I think it's really important for have people talk about their sex lives and their sex stories, because... It helps you realize that, no, you're not normal, because no one is normal. There's no such thing as sexually normal. That variety is the rule in sexuality. And that as long as you're able to have a good working relationship with your ideas of your body and your sovereignty of your body and consent and sovereignty of other people's bodies, then, you know, Yahtzee, (laughs) you'll be fine.
0: Allison says that understanding and acknowledging the range of sexual identities can help a person accept their own. She says she interacts with all sorts of people as a sex educator. She says it's particularly fun to work with people in the last decades of their lives.
4: A lot of the people that I talk to who are older, they're they're going through some sort of sexual renaissance, whether they're coming out as kinky or they've lost their spouse of many decades and now they're back on the scene for the first time, you know, which is a fascinating and challenging and beautiful thing. A lot of people who are just, they've been together with the same person for decades and now they're like, and we discovered it. he likes things up the butt, like now what, you know? Again, there can be some shame attached to it, but a lot of the older folks that I encounter. They have a sense of whimsy that younger people do not have um, That because the stakes might be lower for them. You know, they've had their kids, they've lived their lives, and now they're, they've got, you know, the, their retirement and a lot, of, a lot of hot sex ahead of them.
0: <laughs> Allison identifies as queer, and she says it's a deliberate word choice.
4: I think queer means something different for everybody, just like all sexual labels do. But for me, queer is kind of an invitation to have a larger conversation. For most people, I would probably appear functionally bisexual. My partner is a cisgendered man, but I, I also am in a non-anonymous relationship, so I date women as well. But for me, queer means that I'm interested in people, not just the gender that they have. And I appreciate the kind of bucket kind of quality of queer, the kind of catch-all phrase that it is, because it does, it, I mean, it's very much a political identity. I think some people people still very much bristle when they hear it because it's been a slur for so long. But I think for me it's very exciting because it it means that there's more to the conversation.
0: Alison thinks that the English language is too limiting to capture all of the nuances of sexuality, but she says we're doing our best. We're trying to come up with words to describe these things as we go. No word is ever going to fit the
4: multiplicity of any human's experience of their sexuality and their gender.
0: So, since the vocabulary can sometimes fall short, we need the stories to help us feel sexually worthy. Allison says that it's the stories that invite us to start having some much needed conversations.
4: That we're talking about trans people as people for the first time, unfortunately, in our culture and kind of modern American culture, and I think that's really wonderful, and and I think we're talking about sex work in a more thoughtful way than we used to. I see that we're talking to children about consent more. I think that people in colleges are so afraid of the conversation around sexual assault that we are forcing the hand of communication around what it means to have consensual sex, which is hugely important and, again, completely ignored up until very recently. We've got a long way to go around this stuff, but I think that there's a lot of, I have a lot of optimism there and but again like we're still talking about women's right to choose and just women's sexuality in general as threatening slash needing to be controlled but I think that we're getting to a place now where we're having that conversation What I think will happen next which I'm hoping will happen next the next kind of turning point will be that straight men will be more comfortable talking about their sexuality in a healthy positive way. I think that straight male sexuality is often pathologized because it is considered the source of so many bad things around sex that it creates a lot of shame for straight men. They don't want to talk about their fantasies, they don't want to talk masturbation, they don't want to talk about different kinds of sex. I think that straight men are starting to take the cue from queer communities and from women around how important it can be to own your your sense of sexuality and pleasure and that that can actually be a very healthy thing and I think will help hopefully help remove again some of the pain that we have around sexuality that you know it becomes much easier to talk about consent when everyone going into the situation believes in the the beauty of their own bodies and their own sexuality, that there's nothing to be ashamed of.
0: You can find out more about any of the guests featured on this episode of From the Margins at girlfridayproductions.com. And this episode is the final episode of our first season. So if you know anyone who you think might like the series, send them to iTunes or wherever they get their podcasts so they can binge on all 10 episodes. And if you liked this first season, sign up for Girl Friday's newsletter to be notified as to whether we'll make a second season and when it will be released. If you like any of the episodes in particular or the podcast in general, please share it and rate it on iTunes. We so appreciate all of the support thus far. Special thanks for this episode goes to Anna Katz, Margaret Mallory, Larissa Pham, Alyssa Washuda, and Allison Moon. Our production assistants were Molly Gunther and Devin Simpson. Our sound mixer is Reed Harvey. Girl Friday Productions is a writing, editorial, and book development company, and the place the world goes to tell its story. Find out more at girlfridayproductions.com.